Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis' ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. Keep wildlife out of your trash. The Wildlife Trash Safe developed by Presby Steel does just that. It is made of 14-gauge steel, welded construction, and holds a 32-gallon trash can or 10 kitchen bags. It has been black bear tested and was developed in conjunction with the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. They are lockable, rollable, and they have free delivery in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Call today, 603-752-3022 or presbysteel.com. That's P-R-E-S-B-Y-S-T-E-E-L.com. Keep the wildlife wild and out of your trash with a wildlife trash safe. Guidefitter is the industry network for professional outdoor guides and outfitters the trusted destination for consumers seeking and sharing guided hunting and fishing experiences of a lifetime, and the enterprise influencer marketing platform for outdoor brands. Guidefitter and its members represent the pulse of the guided hunting and fishing industry. Guidefitter's outdoor partners provide discounts to select types of outdoor professionals, including game wardens, members of the military, guides, outfitters, and other outdoor professionals. Over 145 brand partners and counting gear across many categories, including packs, footwear, clothing, flashlights, knives, optics, even firearms and ammo. 
For more information, go to guidefitter.com slash Warden's Watch. That's Warden's Watch, all one word. I'm Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and I'm a member of Guidefitter. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief and Wildlife Heritage, a foundation of New Hampshire at nhwildlifeheritage.org and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. So for today's Warden's Watch podcast, we are actually going to commemorate Police Week. That was last week, but we didn't drop a podcast last week, so we are going to talk about and tell some stories of some Game Wardens that, that lost their lives in the line of duty. And I also want to remember all those police officers, all those peace officers that have lost their lives in their line of duty. And this one hits home really hard for me. Uh, when you know people that have their names on that wall, when they, you can call them your friends, that, that's tough. That's tough. And I have been very attached to the law enforcement memorial for a while. My wife volunteers at it. My son hands out flowers to survivors. I do the escorts, so it's been a strange, strange year with COVID-19 not being able to do that. And in some ways, I thought it would be better, but I know uh, Friday, I just I walked around with a big lump in my throat all day, and I got to see, uh, yeah, the the social media tribute to my friends and all of those officers that, that gave their life. So it was a different kind of special. It was definitely different, but I think it was good, and, you know, being a Warden's Watch podcast, we're we're going to talk about wardens that gave that ultimate sacrifice, and uh, that that's that's tough on us um, because we can relate to where they were, what they did, and if you can remember those others. And I always think when I talk about anybody killed in the line of duty, I think yeah. of my friends and the sacrifices they gave. I think about their families and what was stolen from them. 
So it's, 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 a, it's a tough time, and these are tough stories. They're stories that I want our listeners to hear because it is a dangerous job, and protecting wildlife is so important. So that, that's kind of what it means to me, John, and I know it's, it's special to all of us, but if you, you want to roll right in. Yeah, yeah, Wayne. It, it, it was a heavy week last week, you know, for, especially for the lost conservation officers we've known throughout our careers and the legends that gave the ultimate sacrifice before we even came on, you know. Mm. Um, so it, it, it was a heavy, solemn week for sure. Um, and then all of our other law enforcement brothers and sisters outside of conservation, um, we, we've lost a lot of friends. And one of the ultimate stories that really show the thin green line sacrifice that we make every day and the, and the dangers we face is what happened to, to Bill Pogue and Wilson Connolly Elms Jr. in Idaho, two game wardens in 1981. And uh, I'm going to start by uh, reading part of what's called a monumental tribute that came out uh, in International Game Warden Magazine, summer of 2019. And a big shout out to Dan Kelsey, who's a, a retired senior conservation officer with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. And I'll, I'll start it and you finish it. How's that? That sounds good. Why don't we give it a moment of silence for all of our brothers that have, that have gone before us and gave that ultimate sacrifice. And then you could just start reading, John. Perfect. All right, guys, here we go. In 1981, two conservation officers were murdered after responding to a complaint of illegal trapping activity in a remote area of Hawaii County in southwestern Idaho. The incident drew national attention and opened a discussion that would improve the way Idaho conservation officers were trained. It also changed the Fish and Game Department's rules regarding the optional use of personal firearms by officers in the field to a policy of mandatory carry and agency-issued firearms. They came from every corner of the state to honor two men they had never met. But for members of the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, it was an important event to commemorate these officers who made the ultimate sacrifice for the benefit of protecting Idaho's wildlife resources. On May 13, 2015, conservation officers William Bill Pogue and Conley Elms Jr. were honored with a monument placement and dedication ceremony at Bull Camp, where they were killed as they attempted to arrest a suspected poacher on January 5th, 1981. The idea of placing a monument at the site of the murders began in the fall of 2013, according to the then Assistant Enforcement Chief Blake Phillips. As the project gained momentum, a small group of the enforcement staff made a few visits to Bull Camp to finalize the plan. From the start, the Pogan Elms families had supported the concept of a monument and were kept updated as to the progress by Phillips, who had become close to both families though he had never worked directly with either of the two officers. After the murders, the families created a memorial fund from remaining reward money that had been offered to catch the killer. It was meant to provide Idaho conservation officers with additional safety equipment and training. In later years, Phillips oversaw dispersal of those remaining funds, and so he acted as liaison between the families and the department during the monument development process. Wanting something natural that would blend in with the surrounding environment, it was decided that the monument style would be a rock inscribed with the name of the officers and their and a watch date. The monument was paid for by the Idaho Conservation Officers Association. Since Bull Camp was in a Bureau of Land Management wilderness area, there were hurdles to overcome. The Fish and Game Department needed to obtain a special use permit to place the monument, but because the location was designated a wilderness, no vehicle travel was allowed or even feasible due to the rugged topography. 
To solve these issues, a special stretcher-like carrier had to be fashioned out of metal poles and canvas to cradle the 600-pound chunk of granite rock and transport it over a mile across difficult terrain. The day before the dedication, attendees rendezvoused at the 45 Ranch, creating a memorial tent community around an open field near the ranch house. The 45 Ranch had played a significant part in the events of January 1981. Ranch owner Ed Carlin had placed a call to Officer Pogue to report finding illegal set traps. Pogue then contacted neighboring officer Conley Elms for assistance after two other officers, including Conley's brother Mike, also an Idaho conservation officer, were unavailable. Leaving Boise late on January 4th, the two officers drove through the night, reaching the rim above the 45 Ranch in the early morning hours. They slept in the truck and later that morning had breakfast with the ranch owner, where they learned of a second illegal trapping location, this time in the Bull Camp area. After investigating the first complaint, and citing the trapper for his illegal activities, Officer Pogue and Elms drove to Pool Camp to investigate the second complaint and set out to hike down to the trapper's remote camp located three miles from the Idaho-Nevada border. That evening at the memorial camp, all gathered to hear Enforcement Chief Greg Wooten speak about the shooting incident from the initial call in the late hours of January 4th through conviction. The next day's program was outlined and the department honor guard practiced as did a rifle team created specifically for this event. The next morning, a caravan of fishing game trucks drove the roughly 40 minutes from the ranch across the dusty desert, now speckled with spring wildflowers, to the wilderness boundary, from where, where over the next few hours everyone took turns carrying a section of the stretcher containing the monument. It took a dozen people at a time to transport the 600-pound stone over the rim and into the steep canyon a vertical drop from around 600 feet to the spot where the officers died. Bull Camp is marked by a couple of old century stone buildings across the river from where the shootings took place. As the group approached the site, someone pointed out a few old tent pole pieces scattered in a small clearing where the killer's tent was likely to have been located. The poles were well-worn and decaying from years of Idaho's harsh, high desert climate. Could these be the remnants of the actual tent poles that link back to the events 34 years ago? It presented an eerie step back into the past. Most of those attending the dedication were fishing game department personnel, and including 55 of of the roughly 100 state officers, Director Virgil Virgil Moore, and members of the department's communications bureau who recorded the event. Director Moore was a young fisheries biologist in 1981, when the murders occurred, and it was his first visit to the site. Assistant Enforcement Chief Phillips was a wildlife tech for the department at the time of the murders and recalls how the agency struggled to get through the tragedy. Also in attendance was retired conservation officer Gary Loveland. He had worked with Officer Pogue and Elms and had spoken with Pogue the evening the violation was first reported. Loveland had been asked by Pogue to accompany him but he had prior commitments to work waterfowl hunters the next day and was, was unable to go. For Gary, the memories are still tough, and sometimes he thinks, and he thinks about nearly every day. As a representative of the family, Bill Pogue's younger brother, Eddie, traveled from California, and in his mid-70s, made the trek to the site. He had come hoping the event would bring closure, but after more than three decades of pain and, ang- and anger was still present. Over the years, the families have had to endure not only the loss of their loved ones, but an extended trial process, high-profile national media coverage, and in some circles, the elevation of a folk hero, 
status to the officer's killer. It was not Eddie's first time here. He had made the trip shortly after the murders. Over the years, other family members have also come to see the area. But this time, the trek in and out of the canyon in the desert heat would have been too difficult for some to make. On this occasion, Eddie remissed about his brother's life and the strong bond that still exists between the Pogue family and the fishing game department. You're an extension of the Pogue family, he said. Having all these officers here, in particular, at this memorial has been so special. The memorial rock was set in place with etched names of the officers facing the south fork of the Hawaii River. On the other sides of the rock were inscriptions provided by the two families. So precious fisheries and wildlife resources I valued can be used, enjoyed, and appreciated by present and future generations, Conley Elms. And blessed are the peacemakers, Bill Pogue. There is a quiet and reverence in this place, said fishing game director Virgil Moore. It's sacred ground where the blood of our officers was spilled. It will forever be a part of our memory. One officer found a shed deer antler along the path into the canyon and placed it next to the monument in a gesture to honor the memory. The fishing game honor guard began the ceremony with posting colors. Chief Walton spoke in honoring of the service of these officers. An invocation was made by Assistant Chief Phillips, followed by a 21-gun salute and taps. Though the monument ceremony was brief, the entire two days surrounding the event will remain a career moment, forever etched in the minds of those who participated. Since the dedication is part of every new officer's orientation, fishing game class has made the trek to Bull Camp to walk the footsteps of Officers Bill Pogue and Conley Elms. What a powerful way to honor their service and remember their sacrifice. Mm. Wow. What a beautiful memorial. And uh, uh, that just hits hard. Mm. But, but Wayne, so good to have it out there now for the cadets to see. It's great to see the classes going out to it and taking that hike to make it real, to make it visceral, to understand where we work, how remote it is, and how dangerous our job can be without backup. And I, I remember when I first got to the academy day one, getting, getting just grilled by our TAC officer, uh, Lieutenant Greg Orr, mentioning this exact case. And mentioning how critical officer safety and tactical training for game wardens is now, because we have had a lot of fallen officers, sadly, since the late 1800s. But this is the one that was front and center. This really brought home the danger to game wardens. And this made, you know, national, if not international news. And I know our training and our mindset was completely different when I started back in 1992 because of the ultimate sacrifice um, Pogan Elms made. Just incredible what, uh, what's happened since then. Couldn't agree with you more, John. And now we're going to hear from the assistant chief, uh, Blake Phyllis himself of Idaho Fishing Game, retired, and uh, he's going to talk about the process of this memorial and uh, what it meant to him and, you know, I think what it means to game wardens and those that appreciate us uh, as well. And now we have join us retired assistant chief of Idaho Fishing Game Department, Blake Phillips, who, who's going to add a uh, personal touch to the story of Pogue and Elms, the murders in Idaho in 1981. So thank you so much, Blake, for joining uh, Warden's Watch and uh, adding that personal touch to, to this most tragic story in um, conservation officer game warden history. Thank you. In 1981, you were just starting your, your career, weren't you? Yeah, I just began my career in 1981. I was uh, a wildlife technician for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. I was actually living in a fishing game cabin in a little 
area called Robber's Roost between Incom and McCammon, uh, short distance from Pocatello. So, yeah, those were the early years of my career. But, yeah, I was just starting out with the outfit. Is that the same Roger's Roost that are written about in many Western books and such? Uh, Louis Lamour comes it to is. mind. They're supposed, they're supposed to be uh, some uh, booty buried up there, I guess, from Butch Cassidy and his gang or something like that. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's. I don't know if it's just a legend or if there's some truth to it, but that's how the canyon got the name. Nice. Is that in, and I'm going to say it again, Owyhee County? We're close to this area? No, no. Okay. It's, in fact, it's on the southeast corner of the state. Okay. Owyhee County is in the southwest corner of the state where Bull Camp is located, where Hogan. Okay. And that borders where, Nevada as well, very close, right? Right. Right, just a couple miles from the Nevada border, and that, and that country's pretty remote as well, isn't it? Very, very remote. Yeah, it's uh, every bit as remote as like the Frank Church Wilderness. It's very, very isolated. Mm-hmm. It's out in the middle of the Waihe Desert. Uh, the Waihe r- River runs through there, but uh, you have to have a pretty good four-wheel drive to get around out there. And when you get a call out there, that that that's a day for one call, I'm sure, to go out there investigate. And then make it back. Oh yeah, it's it's several hour drive from from Boise, and from Mountain Home, you're talking maybe 180 miles from Mountain Home. Um, that's the closest big city to that uh, area, and uh, a lot of it is desert driving, a lot of potholes. Mm. You know, typical four wheel drive driving. Mm. So, do, it's out do, in the middle of nowhere. Do Do you remember when you first heard about these murders? Well. Yeah, it, it was quite a shock for me. I, I graduated from Colorado State University uh, in 1978, and my first job was in Idaho. Uh, and I came out here with the idea of working for the Department of Fish and Game eventually. Uh, got a technician job, and then I, uh, in 1981, January of 81, when the murders happened, uh, my father-in-law was also a game warden and uh, hit him pretty hard. Uh, and I had started hanging with the game wardens. I thought I wanted to be a biologist coming out of college, but decided to uh, kind of set my sights on a career with as a game warden, a conservation officer is what we're called in Idaho. And uh, so I had to kind of rethink a little bit uh, after the uh, murder of Bill Pogue and Conley Elms, because, um, you know, I'd never really considered uh, that a game warden could get killed, could get shot in the line of duty. I'd never really considered that coming out of college. Uh, so it kind of touched me a little bit and mm. had to reevaluate, but, uh, you know, kind of recommitted myself that that's, that's the career I wanted to choose. Yeah, it came kind of fortified you in every which way. Um, it yeah. gave you the realization of the dangers of this job. Right. And, you know, I never really wanted to be a police officer, but I had to finally uh, admit that, you know, being a conservation officer, you're facing the same sort of, uh, risk as a law any law enforcement officer in fact more so because 90 percent of the people you're running into have either some kind of weapon either a knife or a gun mm-hmm. so. and can make that decision very quickly to train it on yeah. you that's it's yeah. absolutely if they are if they are capable of bad behavior they have the weapons to carry it out mm-hmm. and then just like what happened to, to pogue and elms that that day in 1981 so yeah um and how did that affect you through your career? You're certainly, you made that decision to stay a game warden, to, to follow in their footsteps. But 
I'm sure every year came around, this memorial came around, this memorial time came around, and, and it's always, especially those that were there, were working at the time, I know that has a different effect yeah. on those people rather than the, the more distance you get from it. Yeah, you know, I, I was finally uh, able to land a conservation officer job in 1983, March of 83. And, uh, you know, the uh, murders were still fresh in everybody's mind. And, and sadly, a lot of the uh, public that we encountered as law enforcement officers, as conservation officers, uh, there was that negative side, you know, the, the murderer, um, he was considered some sort of a folk hero. And we knew that wasn't true because we knew that the two men that he murdered, Bill Pogue and Conley Elms, were, were good family men and, uh, and, and just real supporters of the wildlife resources. That's what they were doing when they were murdered. And, but it was uh, really disconcerting, I guess, when you would contact a violator, typically a violator, or even even somebody that hadn't committed any violations that would say, uh, you know, uh, what do you think, old Claude Dallas? I hate even bringing up his name, but uh, mm-hmm. they considered him something of a folk hero. And uh, or you know, at the end of a ticket book, they would say, I can see why he did what he did. In other words, why he murdered two game wardens because uh, they were implying that you deserve the same treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I heard that a lot over my career. I know all of us did. Uh, it kind of tapered off towards the end of my career, but still occasionally you would see it. You would see signs at camps saying uh, uh, this camp patrolled by Claude Dallas or those kind of, those kind of statements. So that kind of stuff was, was hard to deal with emotionally. And uh, you know, because by then I knew, I knew the families, I knew Bill Polk's family and I knew Conley Elm's family and become uh, good friends with them. And uh, I hated seeing stuff like that. Yeah, even interacting to feeding elk with uh, one of the brothers, right? Well, with his son, Steve Pogue. Okay. Yeah. In 1988, uh, I was stationed in Garden Valley, which also happened to be uh, one of Bill Pogue's uh, first duty stations when he was a young game warden. And uh, so I felt like I was kind of, you know, connected to him that way, in addition to working with his son. And uh, while I was working with Steve feeding elk and deer in the Garden Valley area, uh, Steve Pogue had a clicker that he had received uh, from his dad when, when his dad's possessions were given back to the family. Uh, Steve took this uh, clicker that you, you know, count the number of anglers or hunters that you're checking each day. And uh, he wanted me to have that. And uh, I, I, man, I just felt like I could not accept such a gift. You know, that, that meant something to him. And he said, mm-hmm. no, this needs to be in a game warden's hands. I'm not a game warden. And I want you to have it. And so I packed that with me through the remainder of my career. And uh, then when I retired, I handed it down to another officer uh, in the hopes that he would hand it down to yet another officer when he retired. So kind of carrying the torch. Yeah, passing on a legacy. Yeah, exactly. Because well, we don't want to forget. And, and that's, that's the thing. Uh, these two men died doing what we all love to do. And that's protecting the wildlife resources that we've all come to love and appreciate Mm. probably more so than most people Mm. because we're working with it every day. And we don't want to forget what they gave the ultimate sacrifice, which was their lives. No doubt. No doubt. And that's especially what this podcast is about is to share, you know, your experiences, you know, through your career in in dealing with this. And and one of the most awesome things that, uh, that, that, you know, was this monument that you guys, you know, put together 
and put in that spot where those two game wardens, conservation officers, were murdered. Can you can you share about that? We've read about that and to share everybody, but uh, just just being there and smelling that air and and that the, the like, like I said earlier to you, when you put sweat into something, it means so much more. And carrying a monument to two fallen officers, man, I just it it, it makes me swell with pride with, with what you guys did and made that happen. Could you could you just Give us the insight onto that. I know Dan does a great job in his article, but just uh, try to try to get us there and, and that whole process to do that because it, it, I know it's quite a process. Yeah. Well, uh, I was promoted to uh, assistant chief uh, in 2013, and uh, Greg Wooten, who was our chief at the time, and I sat down and and we kind of hatched a uh, in its infancy a plan to erect some sort of a memorial for. Bill Pogue and Conley Elms uh, at the site where the incident took place in Bull Camp. We knew there were a lot of logistic issues. Uh, it was in a wilderness area uh, on BLM property. Um, it was near a, a reservation. So we had a lot of obstacles to overcome to, to uh, accomplish this. Plus, we didn't know exactly what we were going to erect. Was it going to be some sort of a plaque or, you know, just what we were going to do? Mm. But we wanted to do something. Um uh, and uh, I was in close contact with uh, Dee Pogue and Cheryl Elms and, and Steve Pogue uh, and also his uh, daughter, Judy Pogue. And we wanted to make sure that they were in support of such an effort. And, and they were. Um, so uh, from there, from, those, from the infancy of that, back in 2013, we kind of put a trip together in 2014. And we actually went down to Bull Camp kind of to... Uh, check things out. And, you know, it's the first time I'd ever been down there. Um, and it's, it's so isolated. You can't even appreciate how far away from civilization they were when they were uh, attacked and murdered. Uh, they were in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And uh, walking down that canyon to Bull Camp, uh, you couldn't help but feel there was a spirit there. You know, it was just, uh, you knew something uh, terrible had happened there, something tragic. Uh, but it was almost like you could kind of feel their presence. Uh, I get, I get a little emotional talking about it, mm. but uh, it's an emotional time. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a special time. And uh, so we, from there, we, we went back to the office and formulated a plan. And uh, I think it was uh, Chris Wright, who was uh, the assistant chief over our uh, SUV operations. He came up with the idea of a, of a, some sort of a rock. Uh, a monument that would fit in with the environment down there and would maybe uh, be something that would kind of blend in with the environment. So fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Uh, we started looking at different monument locations, and we found a big old, uh, it's probably between uh, five and 600-pound piece of granite. <laughs> and it, it fit in really good with the surrounding area, blended in with the environment, with the desert atmosphere. Mm. And we approached the BLM about that. and. Uh, and then we put, you know, an inscription on there uh, that 
Bill Pogue and Conley Elms. This was their end of watch, uh, January 5th, 1981. And then I approached the, the family members and Cheryl Pogue gave me a quote from uh, one of uh, Conley Elms' favorite quotes. And we put that on the back of the rock. And I got a quote from uh, Bill Pogue's family, which was, blessed be the peacemakers. And we put those two quotes on the back of the rock, uh, had those inscribed on there. And uh, then we had to figure out how we were going to get it down there. We talked about, because uh, uh, it, because it's a wilderness area, we couldn't have vehicles down there. Plus, there wasn't a road down there anyway. It was just a pack trail. Uh, and it's a drop from the top of the rim where you could actually drive a vehicle on an old Jeep road. Uh, it's probably a thousand foot drop and probably a good three quarters of a mile, maybe a mile to bull camp from the top of the rim. Mm-hmm. And we had to, so we had to figure out how we we're going to get it down there. We talked about a helicopter. We talked about all kinds of different things uh, to pack it down there. But uh, one of our guys, the uh, regional conservation officer up in Salmon, Dave Silcock, is is quite the. He's pretty good at putting things together in his mind, and uh, he put together a sling operation made out of poles and canvas, and uh, it took about. 78 guys on each side of this thing to carry this 600 pound rock. Mm. And we put it in the sling. We, we took it as far as we could with a, uh, with a razor and a trailer or pickup. And then we carried it. We carried it down from the rim all the way down. And we had to keep swapping off. There was, uh, I think there was uh, 55, 60 officers that came. And uh, that day in uh, 20, I think it was 2015, when we finally carried the rock down there, May of 2015, and uh, placed it. And it probably took us mm, close to an hour to get it down there, you know, just swapping off, carrying it and everything. But, and everybody uh, took a it turn. Was a warm, yeah, everybody took a turn. It was a warm day in May. We had our director, who was Virgil Moore, with us at the time. We had Eddie Pogue, uh, who I'd also become close with. Uh, he, he came over from California, and he was 70-some years old, and he walked down with us. He took a turn carrying it. Uh, Gary Loveland, who was an officer uh, that uh, joined Bill Pogues with his district responsibilities and who was supposed to accompany Bill Pogue that day instead of Conley Elms, but had other commitments, so was unable to. Uh, he carried it, and he had since retired, you know, so. Right. Uh, it was good to have there. Uh, he felt a little bit of closure. I think Eddie felt some closure. Uh, through that whole procedure. So it was quite an operation. And we put together a little program. Our our director, Virgil Moore, set a piece. We had an honor guard uh, complete with uh, uh, like a 21-gun salute. We had the flags there. Uh, I offered an invocation, kind of dedicated and, and uh, sanctified the ground that it would be uh, safe from any vandalism and and uh, we still, that's still my prayer is that nobody will vandalize the rock because there still are, there still is that faction of people out there right, that, right. who do not support conservation officers or game wardens. And, uh, and sadly, uh, think that whatever, whatever happened there was justified. And there's no question in my mind that it was not. I think uh, I, I have uh, since retiring from the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, I took a job as a uh, court security officer at the federal courthouse in Pocatello. And I've had the opportunity to work with uh, Judge Edward Lodge, who was the sentencing judge, the judge that heard the case for Claude Dallas. 
And he made, uh, in his statements, he stated that clearly self-defense never arose at Bull Camp. When he sentenced Claude Dallas, he made that statement, made it very clear to Dallas that he didn't believe self-defense ever came up at Bull Camp. Mm. And uh, that's my feeling, and I think that's the majority of uh, people in my agency's feelings, is that that was never a reason for what happened there. Even Claude Dallas himself said to the one eyewitness that was there, uh, Jim Stevens, he told him, he said, this is murder one for me. He knew exactly what he had done at Bull Camp. Right. So, and that memorial and dedication, did I read it was the beginning of your honor guard? Uh, no, the honor guard had been, been around for a while, but okay. uh, yeah, that was one of their, uh, one of several opportunities they've had to serve. Mm-hmm. So no, just that, that whole putting that thing together and, you know, we've read um, that whole tribute that was uh, printed in international game warden uh, about that whole event and just, just getting it from you for me almost feels like uh, I was there and certainly someday would like to stand at that rock and uh, certainly appreciate their sacrifice. Yeah. I was reading on the peace officer memorial site. Uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he posted a uh, thing on there about uh, Conley Elms and how he and he and his son had walked down and uh, were surprised to see this memorial. Yeah, I think they just recently done it and they, he talked about how sacred it felt there. Uh, there was a, a, a spirit there that he felt, you know, and the same spirit I'm sure that I felt when I was there. Nope. I, I think certainly it's uh, one of those places that uh, is going to make you feel that way, much like our, our memorials yeah. to our peace officers that each state has and, and how we uh, honor them during the police week. So certainly we want to honor our game wardens. We want to tell their stories. We, we want to share those stories. And Bill Pogue was quite the artist, wasn't he? He was. He was He was more than an artist. He was a, an incredible man. And, you know, although I didn't know him, I became very close to his son, Steve, uh, his daughter, Judy, and uh, his wife, Dee. And I've learned a lot about him, and, and he was a special, special man. Uh, but his artistic ability was unique, especially when you consider he lost an eye uh, – when he was serving in the Korean War, uh, and I and I guess it wasn't something any more than a, a sleeping. He was blowing up an air mattress, and it popped. And it, anyway, it put out one of his eyes. Hmm. But he was still able to draw some just some beautiful, beautiful pictures. And uh, you know, a lot a lot of people don't understand the sacrifices that he gave in the Korean War. He carried shrapnel in his leg. He uh, he lost a whole unit of his men that he. Didn't want to, they were pinned down and they were short a radio and he went, he decided he didn't want to send any of his men back to get this radio. So he took off uh, and went and got the radio. And when he came back to where his men were hiding, they had been bombed and all of his men were gone. Mm. Uh, so he lived with that his, the rest of his life. And all the times that he, just like any game warden, he missed meals or birthdays or whatever mm -hmm. uh, to help a hunter or to look for a lost hunter or, whatever, or a call out, you know, on spotlighting, yeah, you know, investigate like. a case. Uh, yeah. All those times, uh, he was just a heck of a man. And Bill was the same way. Uh, you know, Sherry and he, uh, were not able to, I mean, Conley, Conley Elms was the same way. He, he was not, he and his wife, Cheryl were not able to have kids and, and, uh, they were in the process of adopting a, a baby from India when he was murdered. Uh, Sherry was still able to complete that adoption after, after the murder and 
and she raised that little girl. But uh, uh, Conley had a uh, way with, he was an avid fly fisherman. I have a couple of fishing poles that Sherry gave me that uh, fly fishing poles that, that uh, Conley made. And uh, they're pretty special, mm. pretty special reminders of the, the men they were. And, uh, you know, you always hear about, hear about Bill's artwork. And, and I have one of his pictures hanging in my basement uh, with a special little uh, tribute from D at the bottom of it. And uh, it's pretty special to me. And it, it's right there along with uh, Conley's fishing pole, a constant reminder of the special men that they were and the talents that they had, mm. you know, yep. talents that were taken from all of us uh, way too early. Yep, no doubt. And I have that same print in my home. And I know my colonel has it in his office, and that's it's kind of why I wanted to start with these guys, you know, yeah. because of their sacrifice. Yeah, they're pretty special guys. Yeah, and to to have that in your house for that memory, guys I never knew, the guys that gave it all for something that we did and we loved, and the willingness of every game warden to go out there and do the same thing is certainly something special. Yeah, you, you know the greatest. One of the greatest blessings in my life, outside of my wife and my family, uh, is that during my 36 years with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, we never lost another officer. Mm. And I, I, I think that is a, a great blessing. Yes. And I know other states weren't as fortunate, but uh, Bill and uh, Conley were the only two that we lost, at least during my, my uh, career with the department. So yep. It sounds like your department took action they looked at that whole incident and whether you retrained or retooled and learned and i think that is the most important thing we can do from any murder of officers incident negative wise is to learn from that take the good out of the bad yeah and a lot of things changed my father-in-law was also an officer with the uh, idaho department of fishing game uh, and he uh, uh was he lived under both Time, time periods, you know, prior mm -hmm. to uh, the murder of Bill and Conley, there was uh, a kind of a, a very lax training that took place. Uh, no firearms training that, that I know of other than an occasional qualification, mm -hmm. but no, no real training on, on the ground training and no real arrest, ne arrest techniques training other than what they got at the post Academy. So uh, after the, uh, incident bull camp with bill and conley things changed it, it wasn't okay to just carry your gun under your seat uh like some of the guys did you know mm -hmm. uh, some of them didn't even carry a firearm uh then it became mandatory that we uh qualified twice a year we had arrest techniques twice a year uh you know revamped the whole training program after that incident I and mean, we became safer mm. uh which is a good thing that came out of all that. And perhaps that's why over my 36 year career, we never saw another officer lose their lives. No, that's, that's a, that's a good legacy. Oh. It is. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for taking your time. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I think it means so much to, to every game warden, conservation officer, environmental police officer um, to hear that from somebody that, that experienced it firsthand, Blake, uh, because um, that's it, it's easy to read an article, but when when you get somebody that's lived it, it it's just a whole nother experience. Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, Wayne. It's it's been a privilege and an honor. 
to talk about two men that uh, I consider my heroes. Mm. Uh, yeah. Me as well. I'll always look up to them and uh, always appreciate uh, their great sacrifice that they gave. Thank you. Hey, thank you. And I just wanted to let you know how you can get the Bill Pogue print, The Trapper, which raises money for the National Game Warden Museum in North Dakota. They're $50 each. That's framed. $20 unframed. And you can email the National Game Warden Museum, which is N-A-G-W-M-U-S-E-U-M at hotmail.com. That's N-A-G-W-M-U-S-E-U-M at hotmail.com. Shipping's included with that, and tax may apply. And I want you to, I just want to read what's written underneath the trapper because it, it adds so much to this print because it actually tells you what this print is all about. So the trapper's in quotation marks by Bill Pogue. William Bill J. Pogue was born on August 9th, 1931. He grew up in Bakersfield, California. Due to his love and understanding of the outdoors, hunting, and fishing, he went to work for the Idaho Department of Fishing Game in 1965 as a conservation officer. One of his other enjoyments in this life was pen and ink drawing. During his life, he produced over 50 of these drawings. He completed The Trapper in 1979. In 1980, he hand-colored it for the cover of Idaho Wildlife, the Fishing Game Department magazine. On January 5, 1981, Bill and fellow Idaho Conservation Officer Wilson Connolly Elms Jr. were killed in cold blood by a poacher. And Bill's daughter signs it, D. Pogue. It's just a great way to commemorate the loss of an officer, the loss of a game warden. And to put that on your wall, for every game warden, it should be hanging in your house. For every supporter of game wardens, it's a great opportunity to have such a, a brilliant detailed conservation print in your home. Okay, guys, our, our second memorial tribute is going to push over to the East Coast. And we're going to recognize and, and, and I'm going to do a reading on the memorial for Officer James Spagnese, who's a Connecticut conservation officer and was a Connecticut conservation officer and just has an incredible story as an officer, as, as, uh, as a man, as a father, as a member of his community, just an outstanding individual. And uh, a very compelling story. This one, this one was hard to read uh, when I first got the draft, and I've, I've been choked up ever since just dissecting, you know, who James was and what he meant to the Thin Green Line. And I think you guys are going to really appreciate this. James P. Spagnese Memorial. I start with a quote: "Perhaps there are not the stars, but rather openings in heaven where the love of our lost ones pours through and shines down upon us to let us know they are happy." On the cold, rainy evening of November 20th, 1998, at approximately 5 p.m., Conservation Officer James Spignese and Conservation Officer Anthony Rose were on patrol in the town of Scotland in eastern Connecticut. Officer Spignese observed a vehicle parked in a field near a wooded area where there had been previous complaints about illegal deer hunting. The hours for deer hunting ended at 4.27 p.m. Officer Spignese and Rose parked their patrol vehicle and entered the field to search for a possible illegal hunter. While walking through the field, a single shot from a rifle was fired and struck Officer Spignese in the chest, killing him. Officer Rose immediately apprehended the suspect and began an attempt to provide first aid for Officer Spignese, but Officer Spignese was pronounced dead a short time later at a nearby hospital. A quote from survivor Vivian Enney in thought that is inscribed on the wall of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, it is not how these officers died that made them heroes, 
It is how they lived. There could be no more fitting description of Jim, Jim Spagnese's life. Jim graduated from the University of Connecticut with a BS in Natural Resources Conservation in 1975 and began his career with the DEP as a wildlife biologist. Jim's work focused on the white-tailed deer program, functioning as the program's leader until 1990, when he left to become a conservation officer. As a conservation officer, Jim's record was filled with letters of appreciation from the public and his supervisors. One such letter really showed what type of officer Jim really was. In September 1997, Officer Spignese and Sergeant Lewis located a vehicle parked in an area where there had been previous reports of illegal hunting. Officer Spignese returned to the area after dark to discover the same vehicle in the driveway of an elderly couple. Officer Spignese had ascertained that the occupants of the vehicle had been fishing in the woods and had parked in the driveway to have a snack. By determining that the occupants had no ill intentions, Officer Spignese provided much relief to an elderly homeowner that he had, <laughs> that he had been quite startled by having these strangers in his driveway. In August 1998, Officer Spignese was awarded the DEP Medal of Meritorious Service, Meritorious Service for the safe return of a runaway youth who had reported to be distraught and had threatened suicide in the Natchuk Forest. Jim located the youth hiding in the thicket of Mount Laurel and returned him to his family without incident. In April 1999, Officer Spignese was awarded the Officer of the Year Award for the Conservation Law Enforcement Chiefs Association. In May 1999, Officer Spignese's name was placed on the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, and Vice President Albert Gore presented the Medal of Valor to Officer Spignese's family at a ceremony on the West Lawn of the Capitol, honoring officers who have fallen in the line of duty. In May 1999, Officer Spignese's name was inscribed on the Connecticut Law Enforcement Memorial in Meriden. A scholarship fund was established by a committee of Spignese's friends, family, and co-workers to provide a scholarship to a University of Connecticut upperclassman who aspires to a career in wildlife management or conservation law enforcement. Donations for this memorial fund can be made by check, or can be made by check and payable to James V. Spignese, J-A-M-E-S-V-S-P-I-G-N-E-S-I, Jr. Memorial Fund, and sent to James V. Spignese Jr. Memorial Fund, P.O. Box 156, Hampton, Connecticut, 06247. And right now I'd like to introduce uh, Kyle Overturf, the former colonel of the Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection. And Kyle did 32 years as a game warden and eight years as a colonel. And I'd like to thank you for that service, Kyle, because that is a lot of time to, to be a game warden. That's uh, pretty astronomical. Uh, it was, it's the best career uh, imaginable though. Uh, you know, I can't thank the people I worked with and the people I worked for enough to give, I can't imagine, you know, when I first came on in 1986, you know, I, as a field officer, I just couldn't imagine looking back that I would have had the opportunities that I had over my career. The people I got to meet, the places I got to go, um, the opportunities, for that for the job I've had it was just been phenomenal and it, it was it was a great career nope I, I would agree and and unfortunately today uh, we're, we're commemorating you know some some officers that that gave gave it all and James Spinassi is one of those officers that was killed in the line of duty in Connecticut and uh, we all suffered his loss and you were actually on during this time and kind of involved and, and still involved with that whole whole uh, memorial and everything. Could you just tell us about that? 
Sure. Um, so it was November 20th, 19, 1998. So almost 22 years ago now. It's hard to imagine that. Uh, the, uh, the day, you know, talk a little bit about that day of what it occurred. I remember very distinctly. Um, I had actually saw Jim that afternoon at our Eastern District headquarters. I was the sergeant in the southeast sector of Connecticut. And I was at the office and Jim was there, talked a little bit. And um, went home early afternoon uh, as because I was going to split my day. I was going to work with a uh, an officer, another officer. We we're going to work Jackers that night. Uh, it was a Friday night. Uh, deer season had just opened uh, that previous Wednesday, so uh, our firearms deer season had been open about three days at that point. And it was uh, forecasted to be a little rainy, a little drizzly. So uh, I was going to work Jackers with another officer that evening. And then around probably five o'clock, maybe right around five o'clock, the phone rang. And it was uh, dispatch telling me that uh, Jimmy had been shot. And at that time, Jimmy was assigned to the northeast sector of the, uh, of the division. So he was in the area just above mine as a field officer. And Jimmy had worked for, you know, I, when Jimmy came on, he was in the same sector as me. Mm-hmm. He was in the Marine District, the Central Zone with myself and Danny O'Brien. So when he first came on, we worked together. Then Jimmy worked for me both in the Marine District and then in the Southeast sector as an officer. And he had been up in his area maybe a year, year and a half when the uh, when he was killed in the line of duty. And I just remember the phone ringing and, you know, picking it up and it was dispatch and saying Jimmy had been shot. And I can distinctly remember thinking, well, uh, you know, maybe got shot by a rabbit hunter, shot in the leg, something like that. And uh, they said, I can't remember if they told me where it was. They said they were bringing him to Wyndham Hospital and they said they were doing CPR on him. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd been an EMT for, for quite a few years. And any time they tell you that, uh, you know, doing CPR, that's just, that's not good. Put on the uniform, wasn't asked to, just, uh, you know, was going to respond to the hospital. And I was maybe... I don't know, five, 10 minutes from my house, my, you know, cell phone rang. I guess we had cell phones then. And my wife was calling and she said, uh, my captain uh, just called and said that Jimmy passed away. And I can remember her telling me distinctly that he died uh, on the way to the hospital. Uh, Jeff, that's the, I can just remember her saying, Henry just called and, you know, Jimmy died. And that still hits you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get, you know, I get choked up just, you know, that's the, you know, the one, one thing of that incident that really sticks out. Um, responded to the hospital, the officer, uh, Jimmy was with another officer at the time. And what had occurred was they were in Scotland, uh, saw a pickup truck parked on the side of the road by a field. And as we all do it, probably hunting, you look in the truck, you see some hunting gear. And it was, uh, again, a foggy, overcast, drizzly evening. Sunset was probably 420, 430. And in Connecticut, uh, deer hunting, firearm deer hunting ends at sunset. So it was well past that at that point. And so Jim and uh, Officer Tony Rose went looking for the hunter, you know, trying to get a late hunter. And that's what we do. You know, you go out and mm-hmm. go out in the woods looking for late hunters. And they were walking across the field, you know, looking for a tree stand or looking for the hunter when a uh, shot rang out and uh, Jimmy was shot and killed. The other officer, um, you know, tried to render first aid went back to the vehicle, you know, called for assistance, went back, you know, performed, you know, attempted to, you know, perform CPR on Jimmy until, you know, help arrived. And it was, you know, some of that was just, uh, you can remember it was so rainy and foggy that night that uh, so dark that Lifestar wouldn't fly. They did try and get Lifestar to the scene and they wouldn't fly. Transported him to uh, Wyndham Hospital, 
where he was pronounced dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a traumatic, traumatic thing. And, and things that game wardens do all the time is how he gets shot. I mean, I don't know how many times at that last light that I'm walking you know, across the field or down a woods road or through the woods to do the exact same thing that the gym was doing because that's it's part of the job is to, to get out there and we operate at night we operate in dusk and it's just uh yeah for have that to happen and then you know have a violation on on top of that because it was after legal that there's no one should have been firing a gun at that point am i correct colonel that's right yeah that was it was it was well past shooting hours at that mm-hmm. time a uh, New York uh, environmental, uh, New York environmental police officer was shot and survived. I think two or three years ago, almost the exact same scenario. Mm. Um, I think it was lieutenant at the time was with him and saved his life. You know mm. the work she did at that yeah. time. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. So, so something we do, and and now you 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 work with the memorial for for Jim, right? Uh, you've been doing. That um, for I don't years. work for the memorial. I was, you know, we were all involved in the memorial. Work with the, it. Uh, yep. The um. So it was uh, sort of, sort of continue on that track a little bit. Individual that shot and killed Jim didn't try and flee. He actually attempted to render first aid. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if he was taken into custody that night or uh, the state police took over the case. Uh, state police major crime squad uh, subsequently arrested, I think for, I don't know if it was manslaughter or what the exact, I can't remember exactly what the charges were. Mm-hmm. And, went to a jury trial and was acquitted on all charges. And that was extremely difficult for everyone involved. Mm. Um, not only did we lose Jim, but, uh, you know, most of us felt that, you know, there was no justice in this criminal case. Uh, no one was ever, ever held responsible. Uh, and it was, that was very difficult for us to take. Right. Um, and looking back, you know, you can imagine that no one felt the loss more than Jim's family. No, uh, you know, Jim wasn't married at the time, but his parents were alive. He had a, you know, a brother, a couple of, uh, he had a niece and nephew. And I remember Jim's brother describing Jim as, you know, what a cool uncle he was. He really was. He was just, you know, he was a, he was just a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't hunt, you know, even though he was a deer biologist, mm-hmm. he uh, didn't eat meat, uh, lived really? sort of an austere lifestyle a little bit. I remember Jimmy saying, you know, when he put, Celery and his tuna fish had turned into a gourmet meal for him. <laughs> uh, you know, he would get up every day. He ran five miles every morning. Wow. <laughs> Didn't matter if, you know, it was Thanksgiving morning. Most of us get up at 3, 3.30 in the morning to go work first. Mm-hmm. Jim would run five miles before that. <laughs> and it was just weird. Now, his days off, it would be nothing for him to bike for 100 miles. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Wow. He was into that. Yeah. Um, But, you know, he was so... He... He was very dedicated to his job. Mm-hmm. He knew what was important. Um, very smart. I think once a month or once every six weeks, he would go and not only donate blood, but donate platelets. Mm-hmm. That's a long process. It is. So, you know, he'd do all these little things that a lot of people didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a wonderful, just a wonderful guy. And it did, it, everyone felt that. 
especially, and I, again, can't, uh, probably no one more than the family felt that loss. Right. Um, but yeah, they're the, they're the ones that turned, you know, along with, you know, a lot of our officers, but they're the ones that led the, this initiative to create something good out of Jim's, uh, you know, line of duty death. Mm-hmm. They were instrumental in starting the, you know, the James Spignesi uh, Memorial Fund. And now it is, you know, it's managed through the University of Connecticut. Uh, we, they give out, the fund gives out a, uh, a scholarship, very significant scholarship. I think it's $10,000 to an undergrad wow. that's going into conservation law enforcement. And they also give out two $1,000 scholarships, one to a Connor High School graduate. That, that's where Jimmy went in uh, West Hartford. Uh-huh. And then I think it's Parish Hill High. Uh, that's the area that Jimmy uh, lived in when he was killed. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the Memorial Fund, it keeps, you know, keeps his memory alive, uh, but it also keeps, you know, everyone together that knew him, that gets to talk about him. Uh, the fund is supported by this, uh, this dinner we hold every year. This is the first time in like 20 years we couldn't have it, obviously, from the right. COVID issue. But it's, it's such a local event. We hold it at the Scotland Firehouse Volunteer Fire Department. They actually pull all the trucks out of the bays. Mm. It's in this, it's in a, you know, a small town fire department, literally maybe two miles from where Jim was killed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they open up the firehouse um, and everybody, they pack tables and you know, it's three, we sell it out. It's 300 people go to that. Wow. And it's such a, and it's, and it's just a community event. Yeah. Uh, guys from Highland come, guys from Massel come. Nice. And, but it's mainly, it's everyone who lives in the community still to remember Jim. Uh-huh. It's a fascinating event. Uh, yeah. They do a golf tournament every year uh, to support the fund. I was, I had the privilege while I was Colonel to go to the um, uh, Yukon scholars night. I believe they call it at mm-hmm. the time. I was also teaching at U- university of Connecticut. Okay. I had the opportunity for six years to teach uh, an undergrad class in conservation law enforcement. Nice. So yeah, it was, it was a great opportunity. And again, I think it was the whole relationship with the University of Connecticut that started their desire through the School of Natural Resources to want to have a class in uh, conservation law enforcement. Mm. Colonel Nelson taught it before I did. And then um, when he retired, he asked me if I would take it over. <laughs> so I did that for, for six years. Um, it was, that was a great experience. What was it's so nice about, cool about the Scholars Night is the... Uh, and all of Jim's family come, Jim's brothers, uh, Jim's nieces, Jim's sister-in-law, they all come every year and they get to sit at the table with the award recipient. So not only is the award recipient, you know, it, they get reminded and understand how important this, this event is and the scholarship and what it means to them. So the family gets to see what that money does for the scholar, mm-hmm. for the UConn student. And then, you know, the student actually sees, you know, gets to hear a little bit about Jim, you know, gets to understand the impact of the family. And, and I was fortunate enough, I think I had two or three students that were in my class, you know, win that award. Wow. Oh, what, what a and, cool thing. Yes, it is. It really is. It's a really, it's a cool thing. To, and just the family's continued involvement. Um, we hold, we do a, a memorial wreath laying at his gravesite every year. Mm-hmm. on the anniversary of his death and and the family comes every year jim's sister comes and his brother and the family come and you know it's a it's again another opportunity for everyone to get together and remember jim and it's and it's a good thing you know, mm-hmm. keep his memory alive and, and his spirit as well uh the memory yep. and the spirit everything you're doing just adds so much more to like you said who jim was 
it's it's not remembering him but carrying on his spirit which is uh it's just phenomenal that you guys do that and that you're involved and that the family is still involved take all the good i keep saying this over and over every time we have an incident take try to take the good out of the bad because to make something positive out of a negative yeah and i think if the fam um you know if the family hadn't been so supportive and so driven to do that people it might we might not have had such a you know, positive memory of Jim. It mm. just, it matters so much. Um, Jim was a huge bike enthusiast, like I had said earlier. And I think it was two years ago, the foundation sponsored or gave a donation to the West Hartford police department's mountain bike team mm. that uh, scholarship fund or through the Memorial fund. Nice. And cause the, he's, uh, he laid to rest in West Hartford. So uh, West Hartford police chief was there. They had their mountain bike crew was there all in uniform with their bikes and stuff. And just another cool way to remember Jimmy, you know, Mm-hmm. Again, he would ride a hundred miles on his day off on purpose. <laughs> no one was chasing him or anything. He would do that. So it was just, you know, people remember that. Yep. And those types of people, if anybody would have survived an incident, it's those people that are in such good shape. You know, that's, that's one thing, you know, law enforcement officers should be doing is trying to stay in shape so they can perform their job. And it sounds like Jim was the, the image of what you should be doing as a game warden and trying to stay in shape. And uh, so when you have these incidents that, you know, the possibilities of survival are, you know, there, but unfortunately. I remember, I remember you know, Jimmy, when he, um, he was a little older when he came on the job, he was a deer biologist first. And uh, before he came over to the law enforcement division, like I said, we didn't hold that against him, <laughs> uh, but um, no, he, and so he was uh, 45 when he had been killed in the line of duty. So he was a little older when he started. I think he came on into the division to law enforcement around 1990. And when he went to the Academy, again, he was in phenomenal shape mm. and he was part of the protective services trainee class. And at that time, the state police were running that. And that was for all, all officers that are in state agencies going through the Academy, such as university police, DM uh, department of motor vehicle, uh, conservation officers. And they had just switched over to a more militaristic semi paramilitary regime. There was a lot of PT involved. So the first, and Jim was a very small a statured guy. He wasn't a very big guy, very small stature, mm-hmm. um, but he was in phenomenal shape. So the first couple of times they were doing the, the PT runs, you know, Jimmy could do it without breaking a sweat. <laughs> and you know, the state police instructors didn't like that. So right off the bat, they made him carry the big heavy flag just to put some pressure on him. And you know, they made him shave his mustache during the class. I think that bothered him a lot. But uh, again, it's just, you know, they picked on him because of his, you know, his stature a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I just remember he was, I think he was working for me. It was in Kellingworth. He had somebody illegally hunting on water company property. He was like, kid was like 18, 19, 20 years old. He saw Jim coming and jumped from his tree stand, took off running. And Jim ran him down for you know, like almost played with like a cat and mouse a little bit let him tire him out (laughs) yeah and the kid finally just like collapsed and jim just like i'm 40 something years old and you're 18 years old and you can't outrun an old guy that was jimmy (laughs) oh that that, that's great that's great so just just a lot of good that the family and you guys i know officer involvement is is huge in these things because it just the family doesn't do it up by themselves those officers that are are dedicated that work beside Jim and, and those for the future that that remember Jim because you know that that it could happen to any one of us like I said you know we could be in Jim's shoes and we said we, we are we are we're out there we're doing that job we're in Jim's shoes so just the reflections and the officer participation is just 
astronomical. So my hat's off to you, Colonel, and, and every officer in Connecticut for carrying this stuff on, the family. It's just so personal, and that's what's nice about doing a podcast is we can read all about Jim, but we, we can't, that personal touch that certainly uh, he had with you and, and the family's had with you, and you know his spirit, I think, continues on touching people. Every year, um, not and it's it's probably out of it's as much out of convenience as everything, but not far from where I live, the uh, they hold the law enforcement memorial run every year, and um, you know every year I they I try and run that run that race, and and I always think it's always a memory of Jim. In the last couple of years, his niece has been there. So like, I get to see his niece at that, and it's just you know, and I I don't post much on social media, but you know, usually for that event, I'll always post um, on you know whatever social media thing i have i'll post you know in memory of jim when i'm doing a law enforcement memorial run mm. so i always try and remember jim for that just because he loved to run yeah and what time of year is that usually colonel that's usually the last like the last saturday or sunday in october okay right in connecticut yeah it's, it's just a 5k so yeah and it rained it rained hard this year so i did actually okay in my so now that i'm getting older i just figured i just start to uh, outlive my competition <laughs> I thought they put you in a different category. <laughs> no, no, yeah, not at all. Luckily, the um, I think what helped this year because I did pl- actually placed in my age category was the uh, retired colonel from the state police. Um, he, uh, Alaric Fox, he's like a sub three, you know, three hour Boston marathoner. But it was this was the uh, these uh, international chiefs of police were meeting in Chicago this year, so some of the chiefs that can run were away. They're getting older, so that's the only reason I could even place because he was in Chicago. So. Uh. That, that, that's, that's, that's great. I'm sure every time you run, you think of Jim and getting up and running yep. five miles every day bef- yeah. before work, even if you're starting at 3 a.m. That's, uh, that's what, yeah, that's what would be amazing. He would look tired at the end of the day, though. But Yeah, yeah, that, that that's great. I wish I had that drive. So, well, well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your experiences. Uh, yeah. No, I, you know, help people remember Jim a little bit and especially, you know, everyone in, in this profession, which is the greatest profession, we, you know, when we have a line of duty death, it hurts and it does affect us. Yes, absolutely. And uh, from the top all the way down. Yeah. I know every colonel's worst nightmare is to, is to get that call in the middle of the night that one of your officers is down. So uh, I know what it was as a lieutenant and I, I know right up through the chain of command, it's, it's the, the only call you do not ever want to get and that it's just yep. a matter of time, you know, somebody's going to get it. So thank you again very much for the interview, Colonel. And I appreciate all you've done for conservation yeah. law enforcement. No, thank you, a Lieutenant. You know, John, I just think of uh, throughout our careers, how close we were to being on those walls. And I, I, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's uh Maybe that's why why it hits home, you know, in the same incident where I was shot in the line of duty, I lost my two friends, Les Lord and Scott Phillips, very close to them. Mm-hmm. I worked with Scott two days before the shooting incident, and uh, yeah, and I know your incident, when you first told that I just put myself in your shoes, and you know, and I just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's how close, every time I look at that wall, I wonder why my name isn't there. Uh, so blessed you survived that crazy ordeal, brother, and you hit it on the head when you said this hits home. It hits home on every close call I've ever had, you know, throughout the career. And when I read a memorial like James, or we talk about Pogan Elms, and I think back to our officer-involved shooting when Warden Crow was shot through both legs and, and almost died, and we all almost took bullets that day. 
and then several other instances following that, I just count my blessings, you know, and I never take it for granted and you never take it for granted. And any of us part of the fingering line of conservation officers need to be situationally aware. I mean, these were well-trained, good officers doing great work, officers of the year above and beyond going way into the back country to, you know, respond to a, a illegal trapping call in the, in the Pogue Elms case. And sometimes your number's up as bad as it sounds, but it's on us if we are not ultimately prepared with the right mindset, the right training, and the right manipulation of our tools to survive those instances. And these cases just drive that point home and, and have kept us alive our whole careers and, and they keep a lot more of us alive moving forward. Absolutely. Take all the good out of the bad. Take that training and, and learn from those situations. Yeah. Nope, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just want to finish with a quote, uh, Colonel Kevin Jordan, the New Hampshire Fishing Game. He's also the president of the Law Enforcement Memorial in New Hampshire. And he always ends with this quote and it, it, it always hits home. So I kind of want to end this, this podcast uh, with this quote. It says, poor is the nation that has no heroes. Shameful is the nation that has them and forgets. And then we're going to end with a prayer from the lead chaplain, Scott McIntosh, from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Law Enforcement Division. God, I'd like to begin by thanking you for the tremendous blessing of living in such a beautiful world. Today, we lift up our great wardens who stand among us to protect both the resources of our states as well as the citizenry that enjoys the wonders of their state. Bless each of these wardens and cover them with grace, peace, and above all, safety. We remember those wardens we have lost in the line of duty. What a great sacrifice each has made for the people of their state. But more importantly, their sacrifice is more keenly felt by their families and their fellow wardens. As the God of peace and hope, we do ask that you would continue to watch over the broken hearts and completely change lives of those who have lost such a vital part of their families. Also, as other wardens step in to take their place, we thank, we thank you for the men and women who give their lives in protection of the beauty of your creation. Help them to know they feel big shoes, but that their own shoes will someday be filled by others with the same desires of protection for the resources and the citizens who enjoy the beauty of your world. We give all of these to you, both those who have passed and those who are now working in their place. Help each to know that their lives matter to you and that they matter to the people of their state for the protection they provide of resources and people. We ask these things from the God of creation, the provider of peace, and the supplier of all good things. Amen. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those 
who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Watch Waypoint TV's Great Outdoors Month celebration, presented by Battery Tender, every Tuesday in June from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Join us for land management tips, family hunts, and conservation-centric films as we show our appreciation for the great outdoors. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.